please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning is uh, found in Romans 12, uh, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so faithful to us, even when we have been unfaithful. God, I'm grateful that we can sing uh, together your praises, that we can gather together for sharpening, for encouragement, God, for an experience of your presence, your love, your goodness. And God, I pray as we open your word together that you would speak as you promised to do so, and that you would give us ears to hear. God, that we would hear these things not simply as words that the person sitting next to us or the person on our mind needs to hear, but God, I pray that there be words for us. And we ask you to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The church is one of the last places left that humanizes people. When I, when I first heard that quote, it's, it's by a guy named Andy Crouch. He's an author. He was here at Christ Community a couple years ago uh, when he said that. Let that sink in again. The church is one of the last places left that humanizes people. And we, we live in a pretty dehumanizing world, don't we? Our, our identity can be summed up with an algorithm. Our most intimate details are for sale as metadata. Uh, the way that we parent and the way that we eat, how we shop and make love and find entertainment and, and communicate, like we live in an increasingly dehumanizing world. The church is one of the last places left that humanizes people. And when I, when I heard that, that sentence, there, there are two things about that in particular that, that frightened me. First, because I feel the, the weight of it, right? I mean, just Google the phrase loneliness epidemic, and you will find articles by, by doctors and psychologists and sociologists and entrepreneurs and theologians and politicians. Like, like you name it, everyone is, is speaking into this. Even just two weeks ago, I found one in the New York Times. It starts out, we humans make a lonely crowd, and it's killing us great. And it goes on and, and talks about the effects on depression and abuse and suicide and longevity and mental health and business and, you know, adolescence, like you name it. And, and so, so first, that, that sentence, it, it terrifies me because I feel the weight of it. But second, it scares me because he says the church ought to be different. But are we? I mean, some of you are here this morning because you've experienced so many other things in other churches, right? You, you've experienced the exact opposite, and you're looking once again for some other place to call home. Others of you, if you're, if you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here, but maybe one of the reasons that you're not a follower of Jesus is because you've experienced too much of this in other churches. 
And you know the church ought to be better. It ought to be a place that humanizes us. And, and we, we want that to be, to be true of us. We want to be a place that brings out the, the best in our humanness, right? That, that understands our dignity, that knows how we were designed a place where we can flourish. In short, we want to be a church that loves. Gross. Loves. Some of you are thinking, we're just going to like hold hands and sing Christmas songs in November. I mean, like we kind of, we have to recapture that word a little bit. We've lost its, its weight. We've lost what it means. What, 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 what is that word all about and what does it mean for us? Well, if you have a Bible, turn to, to Romans chapter 12. A church for the end of the world loves. Now, wait a second, Romans. I thought we were in Revelation. Like, what, what just happened? Like, you're right. If you've been with us these past several weeks, we've been in Revelation. The first three chapters where Jesus sort of dictates to John seven letters to seven local churches in the, the first century world. We've spent time there. Uh, and, and next week... Like, it's Advent already, believe it or not, and so we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be, in, we'll be in Luke for quite some time. Eventually, probably, we'll get back to Revelation. Uh, hopefully, we can avoid it. I don't know. Uh, we'll probably go there at some point. But, like, we wanted, we wanted to do, before we get to Advent, like, we wanted to take just one more week to talk about our church. Because we've looked at, you know, Laodicea and Smyrna and Sardis and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what about, what about the church in Kansas City. And our elders and pastors, we've been praying about this, talking about this, thinking about this. And we were drawn to these words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. And if you take just one thing with you this morning, I hope it's this. Our world is desperate for what the church ought to be best at. Our world is desperate. You know it, I know. We are desperate for what the church ought to be best at. I mean, Jesus said it best, of course, right? And the the same John who wrote Revelation wrote these words down to us. Jesus said to his disciples, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, we know this should describe us. I mean, it's even, it's even in our mission statement as a church, we desire to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world through Jesus Christ, a caring family. But here's the question. We all want a church like this, but are we willing to do the hard work to be a church like this? And this is where Romans chapter 12 helps us, I think. Because here in this, these short verses, there's a lot there, right? If you were listening to it read, there are four things here that define the kind of love our world is desperate for, the kind of love the church ought to be best at. Four things. Love struggles. Love serves. Love prays. And love gives. First of all, love struggles. But this is, this is kind of a hard definition for us, isn't it? Because we, we tend to think of love in our sort of, you know, day and age as kind of like niceness, like it's warm feelings, it's, it's total acceptance of another person and, and self-actualizing to the person who receives it, right? And, and if it doesn't work out, like worst case scenario, you can always leave, start over. 
But real love struggles. Real love requires vulnerability and commitment. You see that in in verse 9 and 10. Let me read that again. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let love be genuine. Vulnerable. I mean, literally in, in the Greek there, it's, it's love without hypocrisy. And, and a hypocrite in the, in the first century, obviously we use that word in a very unique way today. But in the, in the ancient world, a hypocrite was a stage actor. It was a professional pretender, like somebody who, that was their job as they got up on a stage and pretended to be somebody else. And, and Paul is saying here, yeah, okay, but not in the church. Like we're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna pretend here. And yet you and I, we gravitate towards the facade of love, right? And so we'll be nice to someone's face and we'll gossip behind their back. Or, or we'll be too afraid to, to show who we really are and so we, we hide from, from others, right? We're actors, even at church. We pursue this, the sentimentality of love without its substance. But maybe, maybe you think, yeah, but if I'm vulnerable, I'm going to get hurt. And then I'm going to leave. Or I'm going to hurt somebody else, and they're going to leave. That's why we need vulnerability and commitment. You can't have vulnerability without commitment. To God and to each other. Because look, look where Paul goes next, right, after this, this opening sentence, right? Anyone, anybody else find it interesting that he goes right from love to hate? I mean, it's kind of strange, isn't it? He says, yeah, love, love each other, but you also need to hate what is evil, holding fast to what is good. Hate what is evil. But wait a second, if you love somebody, aren't you supposed to accept everything about them? No. I mean, not not if it's dehumanizing, right? Meaning it goes against God or or if it's destructive to themselves or others, then no, absolutely not. Reminds me of when, when Kelly and I we're dating. We lived in, in downtown Chicago, and so we'd walk, you know, everywhere. And so we were out on a walk one, one day, and uh, Kelly stepped right off the curb into the intersection in front of a speeding bus. She was just so enamored by my charm and good looks. <laughs> I know you understand what happened. Um, and, and so, she, you know, she stepped, stepped right in front of a bus. and like, I mean, I guess we just we have to accept each other, right? Who am I to tell her that that was a bad choice? Like, <laughs> of course not. Like, I, I reached and I grabbed her by the back of the collar and I yanked her back so hard that it actually hurt her a little bit. But it, it's better than the alternative, right? Some of you have always wondered how I convinced this beautiful, gracious woman to marry me. Now you know. Others of you are like, yeah, I bet he pushed her and then saved her. Yeah, well, you'll, <laughs> you'll never know either way she belongs to me, right? Okay, love, like, listen, like, love isn't passive. Love hates which I know it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say together, but love hates. It hates what is evil because sin always distorts our humanness. It always makes us less. And if we love someone, we're committed to their very best. And so you can't tolerate their addictions or their anger or their abuse, their, their greed or their gossip, their lust or their laziness. Not because you're better, but because you see the bus coming. 
And to, to do this, to love like this, it requires commitment, right? Love one another, he says, Paul says, with brotherly affection. Literally in the text, it's be devoted to one another. Like family, you know. You're stuck with family. Like, like it or not, some of us are going to spend a lot of time with family this week. And, you, and like, you can't, you can't pick your family. And yet our, our whole world is desperate for this messy kind of love. So what does this mean for us? This vulnerability and commitment, what does this mean for Christ's community? Well, for starters, it means we're not going to fake it. I mean, this is one of the reasons why uh, Reed and I, when we're up here, we share openly about our struggles. It's not, it's not group therapy for us. Right? We do that because we want to go to a church where love is genuine, where we can be vulnerable. We, we don't have to hide who we are. You don't have to fake it here. And yet at the same time, like you don't have to hide, but we're committed to, to God and to his word and to each other. So you don't have to hide when you come here, but like, you also should feel uncomfortable in church from time to time. In fact, if you, if you never feel uncomfortable here, we're not doing our job. Because God confronts us regularly in his word. And yet, when we're uncomfortable, because we're committed to one another, we don't just, we don't just leave when that happens. Because the reality is, like, we're going to disappoint you. I mean, check, right? For some of you, like, yeah, you've done that. Like, we know. Like, we're going to just, the people around you are going to disappoint you. And, I mean, it's, like, truth is, if you haven't been annoyed by someone at church lately, it probably is a sign you're not engaged enough, right? Or that you're the annoying one, right? <laughs> but either, either way, right? Love struggles. But we're desperate for it. And so are you in? Love struggles. Second, love serves. This, this persevering desire to give ourselves away. And I love, I mean, Paul's a realist about this. He knows how hard it is. Even the, even the way he phrases it, verse 11, he says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. That those words zeal and sloth together, they're, they're, they're basically opposites because Paul knows how easy it is for us to grow, to grow lazy. Zeal is like this passion that doesn't quit. Yeah, it's easy to get lazy, isn't it? And for most of us, I mean, we're busy, aren't we? And so our laziness, my laziness, isn't about inactivity. For me, it's often about a lack of priority with my activities. Because what we do, instead of, instead of fully giving ourselves to, to a few things, we say yes to way too many things. And that's... All, that's laziness. Like the hard work is directing our zeal in ways that love. Choosing to serve everyone, everywhere, and everything. Because you and I, we, we all have a default, don't we? Kind of a default setting. You know, for many of us, our schedules either default uh, towards being served, right? We love that, getting what we want. Or trying to do so much, we default towards doing so much, that we, uh, like it, we have to prove that we're good enough, right? And so we just add more and more. See, I'm a good parent, right? I've got my kids in a million activities. Like, that's kind of the, the mentality. We, we try to, either way, though, our, our defaults are about us. And so instead of defaulting 
how about designing our schedules and building it around what actually humanizes us and others around loving service because when we do when we design our lives around like that focuses our priorities first of all so you, you know what to say yes to what to say no to It also gives us an incredible sense of meaning because we see the difference that God can make in those things, and it changes us. I mean, Paul says, be fervent in spirit. I mean, literally, it's like, don't lose your fire. And the reality is, if you feel feel stuck in your relationship with Jesus, bored or stagnant, maybe you've lost a little bit of that fire, let me just ask, who are you serving? Where are you pouring your life out? Because i tell you what, one of the most effective ways to get unstuck, if you want to learn compassion, patience, humility, dependence, it's by seeing your life as an opportunity to pour it out in everything, everywhere. And listen, I know, I know what some of you are thinking. This isn't just a plug for serving at church. Okay? We do this with, with all of life, but let me, just, let me just say, like, if you want to build this into your life, one of the easiest ways to add this keystone habit into your life is by starting here, because you're already here, right? I mean, you've already made this, at least t- this morning, you've made this a, a commitment to, to be here this morning, and so may, maybe become what we often refer to around here at Christ Community as a two-service person or family. Like, what's that? Well, a lot of you are doing this, right? But this is like, you come for, for one hour, you, you you worship together corporately in this, this space, and then you find a place to, to serve. Maybe if you have kids, bring them with in church. We want them in here. Um, and then find a place to serve. Be here both services. Just, just add in an extra hour. I don't know if you know this, but every Sunday, we need 95 volunteers for our children and students. 95. And another 33 just for hospitality stuff. Coffee, door greeters, welcoming, that kind of thing. Every week. And our, and our greatest need is always with our kids. Like, you, you know that. We had almost 300 kids birth through fifth grade here last week. Seriously. That's becoming normal for us. I know for some of you, you're thinking, well, that's, just, that's not for me. But somebody has to do those things. And I hate to be the one to tell you, but it's actually not, it's not, it's not about you. <laughs> it is an act of sacrificial love. And the reality, the reality is sometimes serving in the places that are hardest for you are the ways in which God will shape and change you and do the most in you. If you want to get unstuck, you need to find a place to serve. We asked a, a couple recently why they serve every Sunday. Listen to what they said. They, they said, not only does serving every Sunday feel good, but we've realized it's teaching our children a whole separate lesson about giving yourself and your time and talents. There's something about serving that just uplifts us. It's carried over into our relationships outside of children's ministries and even outside the church. Serving every week, I love this, has molded our hearts into feeling like serving people. And is spilling over into serving outside the church. Like, isn't that, isn't that amazing? That's what a keystone habit does. Like, it's a habit you form that, that affects all these other kinds of habits that changes you, that grows you. And yes, you can, you can, 
you can come here, you can sit, and you can leave. You can do that. We'll try to love you, and we'll try to care for you as best as we can. You can do that. And yes, we need your help. But if that describes your pattern, you are the one who is missing out, not us. And if you want God to invade your life, you need to stretch yourself in ways that cause you a little discomfort, that pours your life out on behalf of others. Living with zeal, serving the Lord. And our world is desperate for it. Inside these walls and everywhere we go, love serves. Are you in? Third, love prays. That sounds a little weird, right? I mean, we know prayer is good and all that, but like, why does our world need this aspect of, of our love, right? It seems, seems a little bit strange. But here's, here's the reality. Like, things, things feel pretty hopeless right now, don't they? I mean, you look around, you talk to, talk to people, and, and the, the sense of, of despair, of loneliness continues to grow. Like, there is a darkness, it feels like, that is about to swallow us. And we feel it everywhere. Everywhere but here. We hope, right? And everywhere God's people go, right? Every, everywhere in which we go, we should be different. There should be joy, patience, hope. Look, look how Paul says it in verse 12. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. I mean, what he's saying, like, we can, we can rejoice. You and I can have joy because no matter how dark things get, we have hope. And if not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. And with such hope, there can be joy, right? Which means also that we can be patient through our tribulation because we know that it's not going to, it's not going to always be this way. It's not always going to define us that no matter how hard things get, it will not be forever. And it is with this kind of confidence that we pray to the king who rules over the universe. And as our world panics and despairs, you and I are people of prayer, of hope. It, it's sort of like, bear with me here for a second, it's sort of like re-watching your favorite sports game, whatever, whatever that happens to be. Like, like for us, we, we've enjoyed uh, re-watching the highlights of the 2015 World Series. I know, I know, we're living in the past, but like, do you remember how fun baseball used to be, right? <laughs> and, and like... You know, I say that, but then I think back, and some of you are right there with me. It's like, actually, in the moment, live, it wasn't fun at all. Like, there was so much anxiety. Like, I can remember, like, the late nights and, and pacing back and forth in the, the living room, yelling at my kids, would you just be quiet and watch the game, right? I mean, it was, it was awful. But watching the highlights, I mean, it still shows all of those moments of tension and anxiety and disappointment. Like, they're all there, Right? And you look at those Mets fans' faces, and you're like, man, wow, that's, that's really tough for them, right? But like for us now, from this side, like it's just pure joy. You see that? And, and like, think, think about this. Like even the lowest points now watching the highlights only serve to bring out the greatest satisfaction. The darker it gets, the lighter it becomes. Why? Because we know how it ends. And, and for you and I, if we are people who follow this guy named Jesus, the one who died and rose again and promises who come back, this should describe us. This is our confidence, our hope, our delight. And yes, yes, we feel the darkness around us, inside us. 
Some of us, our circumstances are really difficult right now. And yet we also know how light is going to break through. And yet you cannot maintain this level of hope by yourself, can you? You and I both know it. Like fear is contagious, panic, despair. But so is hope. And if you want this kind of joy in your life, this kind of confidence, you need to be here every single week. Every week. We need need one another to remind us of this hope. And not just here, like you need friends here. You need a small group of people who know you, who love you, where where you you can stoke each other's joy and hope, where you can pray together. And one of the easiest ways for us to do this is through our community groups. We've got a new session starting up in January. Maybe that's one of your New Year's resolutions. Let us help you find this. I recently heard a story about one of our groups, eight single women, who uh, now, like, they visit each other in the hospital. They bring each other meals when they're sick. They pray together. They become a family for one another. Our world is desperate for what the church ought to be best at. And love praise. Are you in? All right, one more. Love gives. It struggles, it serves, it prays, and it gives. Verse, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And I, I hope this, this encourages you. Last year, across all of our campuses, we uh, together gave $67,146.15 to contribute to the needs of the saints. So those are people within our church family who couldn't buy groceries or pay their rent or uh, couldn't afford counseling or pay their medical bills or, or whatever, right? $67,000. You and I help pay for that in those, those families' lives. And when you, when you give to your church, you give to those needs, and, and within our church as well as outside of our church. And so when it comes to things like outreach or programs that exist for outside of Christ's community, this year, think things like Mission Southside, we heard with the trees, right? Or, you know, we're going to hear later about uh, this, this event going on at lunch today with Mission, uh, Mission Adelante. Um, that's not it. Youth Front. Yeah. But what's it called, though? Imagine Argentina. There it is. There it is. Thanks. Reed's always got my back. Appreciate that. Make sure you're here second service, too. Just, um, <laughs> but these, these things outside of Christ's community, this year we have budgeted $950,000. It's just like, let that sink in for a moment. And so when you give, you give towards partners working with children and immigrants and education and the homeless and affordable housing and addiction recovery all within our city. You give towards church planting and pastoral training and evangelism and sustainable poverty alleviation in Rwanda, Kenya, Iran, China, Germany. You give towards our own, our own pastoral residency, the things that we're doing to, to train and, and mentor pastors as well as vocational leaders, young college grads who come that we, we send out and help empower them as, as they think about connecting faith and work and, and multiplying congregations in Kansas City. And, and when, you, when you give to your church... You give love. And we work really hard to, to find the very best partners in those various areas. And, and when we give to needs within our congregation, we have systems in place that help us to help without hurting, right? And this enables us to show hospitality. 
I mean, that's, that's where Paul goes. Like, he builds to that here. And, and obviously, we, we want to practice that individually in our own homes. We also want to be a hospitable church, don't we? We want to be a place where those who don't look like us or sound like us can come in and find home. We want to be a place where skeptics can ask really hard questions and, and wrestle with their doubts with us, and it'd it be okay. We want, to, we want to be a community with those who, who you know, are dealing with same-sex attraction or any, any number of difficulties can be known and loved. We want to make the world a more hospitable place, don't we? And that starts in your home and in this home. You know, one of the things I love most about Christ community, and I hope I can say this without sounding like I'm bragging, I don't, I don't mean it that way, but I, I love how spread out we are as a church. That sort of, instead of kind of the old model of, you know, everybody drives to one place from across the city to one, to one location, right, and sort of growing in, in one spot, I love, I love that we, instead, we brought church to all different communities, right? And that's why we're, we're here in, in Oasis. I think this, is, this has enabled us to be local, to be smaller, and I think to be more hospitable. I even think of the people just a couple weeks ago who were baptized here, right? Right, right here, nearly, nearly 30 of them. And there was almost 1,000 people in this room, if you can imagine that, from all over our city, together celebrating the new life of those who have come to follow Jesus. Like that, that only happens through our hospitality, through our love and compassion across our city for others. Our world is desperate for what the church ought to be best at. This is why we're purchasing and renovating those buildings, right, for downtown and, and Shawnee. You need a home to be hospitable, and we want, we want God to do there what he keeps doing here. And when you give, yes, you're obedient to God, and yes, you get to be a part of his mission, like like. Don't you, you hear these things? Don't you want to be a part of that, right? The things that God is doing here and across the world. But it also changes you. There is a joy in generosity that you just cannot buy. And if you aren't living a generous life, I mean, sure, we need it as a church. We need it now more than ever before. But again, it's not us who misses out. If you're not being generous, you are the one who is missing out. And so is our world. Because we are desperate for what the church ought to be best at. But we have to do this together. And when we do, I love how Madeline Lingle said it. She said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. And that's... That's why we do this. Not, it's not for us, right? It's not, it's not for Christ's community. It's because Jesus said it is by their love that people will know, and we want them to know. And it's also by his love that empowers us to be able to do this, right? For John also said, we love God because he first loved us. And this, this love, this is what empowers our love. This is what fuels our love. We can love because we have been so loved, because we, we have a God who has struggled for us. That Jesus, and we're going to celebrate this in Advent, like Jesus came, he became a human, right? He entered into this world and suffered and died. He struggled on a cross for our sins. And he came not to be served, but to serve. And he even prays for us. 
continues hoping for us. And he has given everything on our behalf. And friends, we are desperate for what we ought to be best at. And when we love like this, do you know what happens? Let's watch.